It is another blessed opportunity that we've each been given as the shades of evening gather about us this Sunday afternoon to appreciate the blessing that's ours to assemble in the name of the only God that there is, the God in heaven who reigns in splendor and in majesty and in regal appreciation of all, of course, of the universe He's made. It is true that we're again blessed with a good number, both in our Pippin membership and others who've come our way, and we're delighted that you're here, and we hope that the lesson that we share in every other aspect of the service will be uplifting and in strict agreement with that which the God of heaven has revealed. It is the case, as you may have noted in the bulletin, as well as on the wall to my left, that this evening we'll be giving thought to a particular chapter in the Word of God, a chapter nestled near the close of the book of Matthew, a chapter that nonetheless has been the occasion of so many misteachings, misunderstandings, and misapplications of the Word of God. A chapter that in fact has been sufficiently controversial and problematic, and yet there are multiplied thousands that seemingly have grasped what has been taught despite the fact it's an error. And they often live their life in thinking that these mistakes that they have understood are in fact in the Word of God. I would trust tonight over the next few moments that we might shed some interesting spotlight on the 24th chapter of the gospel according to Matthew and in so doing to try to rightly divide the word. That is, of course, the charge and challenge given to each of us, understanding that the sum of the word of God is true, Psalm 119 verse 160. As that sum, S-U-M, is in fact the truth, I would invite us to, especially when the right time in the lesson comes, to think about that passage that was written in our hearing just a little bit earlier. Some movement or thought to point us in the direction of the lesson may well in fact be these considerations. I suppose it is still true, and it likely has ever been so, that the mere discussion of last things is so very interesting to so many. The very mention, as soon as any preacher, any writer, any particular person in presentation points attention to the end of time, the scenario of events supposedly to take place then, the record of what shall transpire and the order thereof, it captivates. It is filled with such interest. And might we say that there have been legions of preachers on the television and the internet who almost make it their sole consideration to use last things as their topic of presentation. And as they do so, they have many who will just sit dumbfounded as they listen, captivated by what is asserted as if it's true, when all the while in so many cases it is not. As we think about those chapters that in the Bible often are so sorely misunderstood, it likely is the fact there are but a handful that seemingly bubble to the top of any such list. Ezekiel chapters 38 and 39 would be high on the list. Revelation chapter 20 is high on the list. But I don't know that any would surpass Matthew 24. For a chapter that's misunderstood, a chapter that's misapplied, a chapter out of which things are taken out of their context and used to teach what the Lord never taught. Sadly enough, tonight I hope that we can give some reflective thought to that chapter, not using our speculation, but letting Jesus Himself tell us that of which He spoke, and let Him identify the scene, the scenario, and the fullness of these thoughts. This chapter that I have in fact described as a sorely misapplied chapter, 
I feel sure that that is not a misdirected title in any way. It seems as if, as I look at various things as they're preached and taught, and as I listen to the way in which this chapter is set forth, it's disheartening. It's sad to hear the Lord's words twisted and used to teach what He never, ever taught. Tonight, let's see if we can do the chapter justice. As you can see, the chapter is somewhat lengthy, having 51 verses. Our major point will be to observe the overall thrust of that which the Lord spoke and let Him tell us how the chapter should be divided. As we do that, we will learn some valiant lessons about the end of time along the way. And not only that, we'll appreciate also the other things which the Lord addressed as well. As we do that, might we will begin like this. Attempting to appreciate the setting of the chapter and striving in this consideration to again allowing Jesus, the very spokesman, to tell us the nature and the thrust of the sections of this divine piece of the Word of God. Picture it with me, if you will. It was Tuesday of the very week in which our Lord would be crucified. He had entered triumphantly into Jerusalem two days earlier. As He entered on that occasion, the people were at first so excited about His visit. They strode palm branches before Him as He rode the donkey into town. However, it would be but a mere little while later that their attention was turned. They no longer was as, were as excited as they had been. For after all, He wasn't the kind of king that they wanted. They wanted one who would release them from their overlords, the Roman persecutors, but the Lord wasn't that kind of king. He was the king to rule and reign in their hearts and lives. And in so doing, we readily appreciate that by Tuesday, it was a rather full day for our Lord. Sometimes I know many of us have a full day. We go from early in the morning until late in the evening. We're busy all day. Activities at the office, activities at home, activities in other realms of life. The Lord knew what it was like to be busy. Reflect sometime on the Tuesday of His crucifixion week and see if He wasn't as busy as any of us ever would be on that day. In the hurriedness, though, of that busyness, He always had time for the questions of His followers. And He always had time to dispel to them the nature of the truth on that occasion. The Lord, as you'll notice, I've tried to outline in some of the features on that slide. You'll notice that the time came that day when He and His apostles were departing the temple complex. The Lord had been teaching. He had been instilling within the hearts and minds of His followers some pertinent and eternal truth as they were departing the temple complex. Some questions were asked of Him. The disciples in particular asked Him in verse number 2 of Matthew chapter 24. Or rather, verse number 1, Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and His disciples came to Him for to show Him the buildings of the temple. That temple complex was impressive to say the least. In fact, I've tried to highlight just a few of the features about the nature of those questions. As they pointed the Lord in the direction, observe the greatness of the stones on which this temple is constructed. Observe the thoroughness, the steadfastness of it. It is true that that temple had been in construction for a long, long time. In fact, in John chapter 2, we learn that Herod had been in remodeling of it 46 years. 46 lengthy, long years. 
And yet, as the apostles could direct their attention to those stones, they looked so unmovable. They looked so certain and they looked so certain in terms of their location. Interestingly enough, Jesus, however, had something to say to them. See ye not all these things, verse 2? Verily I say unto you, there shall not be left here one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. We notice that that must have seemed an almost unbelievable comment to those apostles. These rocks out of which that foundation were made were enormous. Some of them to this day we recognize weighed over 750 tons. Those stones had been put in place. This building looked unmovable. It appeared to their perspective to be unshakable, and yet to hear the Master say, I'm telling you, not one stone is going to be left on another. That would have captured their attention just like it would yours and mine had we heard it. Is it any wonder then that as those apostles heard that, four of them asked Jesus. The Lord and those apostles proceeded on their way as they left the city of Jerusalem, directed eastward. They passed through the Kidron Valley and crossed the Kidron Brook. And as they ascended that which you and I would call the Mount of Olives on the other side, the Lord reached a rather comfortable place. And as He sat there on the top of that Mount of Olives, four of the apostles came to Him. Peter and Andrew, James and John. And they came privately to the Lord and said, Lord... Verse number 3 of Matthew 24. Tell us, when shall these things be? And what shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world? These apostles asked Jesus then these questions that you and I just read. These questions, as you will appreciate it there, were more than one in number. I would invite you to note them with me again. Verse 3 of Matthew 24. When shall these things be? What things? Well, clearly, that question was related to the very things that Jesus had just referenced. The destruction of the temple. The destruction of the environs of Jerusalem. The ask, Jesus, when is this going to be? But that wasn't their only question. What shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world? You'll notice that then these other questions had to do with the Lord's later coming, His second coming, and also the end of time. They phrased it exactly, the end of the world. It should never be forgotten then that they asked Him more than one question. And thus every one of the things we see were not given an answer to the same question. But the Lord answered every question that they asked Him. And as the Lord answered these questions, we need to parse correctly. In which verses was the Lord answering which question? It is a very different thing then to appreciate the destruction of Jerusalem in contrast to the end of time. Tonight as we look somewhat more carefully at that, you'll notice that at the bottom, three quick things we might observe as we move forward in our our lesson this evening. First of all, we would expect that there would be a complete harmony between this chapter and every other passage that addresses this very matter. Might we not forget then that Mark chapter 13 and Luke chapter 21 both include statements from the same week, or the same day of the same week, this Tuesday of the Passion Week, in which Jesus addressed these points. But the second idea would be this. The Lord answered more than one question. And thus those today that take His answer to say the destruction of Jerusalem, but apply it as if it were the end of time, they make a grave mistake. 
And they make a grave error. But by the same token, to take the Lord's answer to the second questions and apply it to the first one, to the destruction of Jerusalem, that too would be improper. Finally, the last observation, we should never forget that our Savior gave us the clue as to when He was answering one question versus the other one. That is seemingly is what so many have overlooked. And they seemingly think that all of this chapter was the answer to the same question, when in fact it was not. It is with that in mind that let's move forward then and look more carefully as we unpack Matthew, the 24th chapter, arguably the most misunderstood chapter in all the Bible. These next thoughts bring us to this appreciation. As the Lord answered these questions, the top of this slide lead me to appreciate and ask you to do the same, that this comment seems perfectly in order. That as the Lord addressed these answers, as He answered these apostles' questions, those two answers lead us to observe this interesting thing. Namely, that they had asked Him three questions. But as far as this chapter tells us, He only gave two answers. What must that mean? That must mean that the latter two questions had the same answer. And remember, those two questions were these. What shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world? It would thus appear that the end of the world will coincide with the Lord's second coming. And that powerful point is set forth clearly in the passage before us this evening. Thus, as they ask these questions, that first one, When shall these things be? I would invite you to look at this interesting point. Jesus gave us the text in which He transitioned from the first answer to the second. Please go ahead and look at it even now so that it will be clear in mind as we come later to a more clear exposition of that passage. In verse number 34, and this is a key verse in this chapter, Verse number 34 of Matthew 24, Jesus said, Verily I say unto you, this generation shall not pass till all these things be fulfilled. At this point, might we appreciate what that asserts? There are any number of things the Lord had discussed and described in the verses preceding that one. We're going to look at some of them in just a moment. But one thing to keep in mind is then that every one of the matters and every one of the things listed and every one of the assertions the Lord made, Jesus said, This generation shall not pass until all these things be fulfilled. He didn't say until some of these things be fulfilled, until most of these things be fulfilled. He said until all of them be fulfilled. And we can rest assured then that from the early parts in the chapter up through verse number 34, all of that was to be experienced by the people of that generation. It was to be experienced in relation to the destruction of Jerusalem. It was to be experienced and how terrible it was in light of the events surrounding that terrible scene of events in A.D. 70. But you'll notice that as we discuss this in a moment, many of the events prior to verse 34 are used by these fanciful preachers of our day to speak about the end of time. But we've learned that Jesus said this generation, that generation 20 centuries ago would not pass until all these things be fulfilled. 
As you think about some of the later points then on that slide, this key idea in verse number 34, you'll notice that for us then to mishandle this and to apply these previous verses in answer to the second question, we make a grave mistake. In fact, we completely mishandle this section of the Word of God. And as we would do so, no wonder then that it would contradict other books and other chapters. If we rightly divide it, there are no contradictions. With that in mind, what are then some of these things that precede verse 34 and therefore were applicable to the destruction of Jerusalem? And what then are these things that follow verse 34 and are respective to the end of time? Let's begin by noting this. We won't read the fullness of those opening verses, but let me just point out some of them since I'm sure you have heard them about as often as I have. In verse number 7, "...nation shall rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There shall be famines and pestilences and earthquakes in divers places." It seems as if every time that there is some noteworthy earthquake in the Middle East or in the Far East, someone is willing to say the signs of the end of time are here. They are not. Notice, this is in a verse long before verse 34. We can't conclude anything about pestilences and earthquakes, nation rising against nation as it would pretend and portend the end of time. That was with respect to the destruction of that ancient city of Jerusalem. But look even further. You'll notice verse 8 says, All these are the beginning of sorrows. But then the Lord proceeded to make mention of a few of these matters as well. There was to be a great persecution, verse number 9. There was to be, admittedly, the proclamation of the gospel in verse 14. But did you note in between, verse 13 said, He that shall endure unto the end, the same shall be saved. There was in need of all these difficulties, nonetheless, the importance of steadfastness and the importance of a perseverance unto the end. Let's read even further. You'll notice in verses 15 and 16, mention is made of the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel. What the Lord here brings to our mind is back in Daniel chapter 9, there was a prophecy uttered over 450 years earlier about events that were going to take place as destruction of Jerusalem actually came to be. At some point, as we think about the nature of Daniel's prophecy, isn't it an overwhelming matter then to appreciate that the destruction of Jerusalem was not just an arbitrary eventuality. It happened just as the prophet Daniel had said it would. Even beyond that, interesting, isn't it, in verse 16 and following, then let them which be in Judea flee into the mountains. Let him which is on the housetop not come down to take anything out of his house. Neither let him which is in the field return back to take his clothes. And woe unto them that are with child, and to them that give suck in those days. But pray ye that your flight be not in the winter, neither on the Sabbath day. For then shall be great tribulation." such as was not since the beginning of the world to this time, nor shall ever be. You'll notice there that some interesting thoughts have been stated. Fleeing Judea, verse number 16. May we quickly say, though we'll highlight it later, when the end of time comes, it won't matter if we're in Judea, Tennessee, Japan, Asia, or at the South Pole. 
it'll be, it will not make any difference physically where one, one might be located. But here the Lord said, it won't be particularly good if you're in Judea when that destruction of Jerusalem comes. Not only that, did He not say, those on the housetop don't return back. You need to flee at once. Did He also not say it would be better not to be pregnant then? You and I can appreciate how that makes perfect sense for the destruction of Jerusalem. After all, if a lady were pregnant, she would not be able to run quite as quickly. She would not be able to flee quite as quickly. And when those destructive forces of the Roman army came, there was precious little time to get out of town. No wonder the Lord said, hopefully it won't be on the Sabbath. On the Sabbath day, the doors of Jerusalem, of course, were shut. The outside entrances to the city were barred because there was to be no trading that day. No wonder the Lord said it would be better if it not be on the Sabbath. But again, what difference does it make if the end of time happens to fall on Saturday? What difference does it make if a lady happens to be pregnant when the end of time comes? That'll make no difference. There is a world of difference then between the first 34 verses of this chapter and those verses that follow. The Lord here was describing the destruction of Jerusalem. Not only that, you'll notice He figuratively, figuratively stated in many things, beginning in verse number 23, Then if any man shall say unto you, Lo, here is Christ, or there, believe it not. For there shall arise false Christs and false prophets, and shall show great signs and wonders, insomuch that if it were possible, they shall deceive the very elect. Behold, I have told you before. Jesus was, of course, the master prophet. And He revealed to them here what would transpire 40 years after the events of this particular time. The Lord was crucified in the spring of A.D. 30. Forty years later in A.D. 70, the Roman armies led by those powerful Roman generals indeed did come. They besieged Jerusalem and it was a terrible occasion. For those living therein who had not escaped, it was almost unbelievably bad. You can imagine as those Roman armies surrounded the city, there was no trade in or out. It came to the point, of course, there was no food. He came to the point that there literally was virtually nothing. The people were reduced to getting by on nearly anything they could find. Now keep this in mind. The Lord, 40 years earlier, had given clues and signs so that they could know when Jerusalem's destruction was about to happen. Jesus gave some signs. Did you notice, again back in verses 7 and 8, earthquakes, pestilences, Sorrows of various sorts, wars, kingdoms rising against kingdom. When these things start to happen, Jesus said, you realize Jerusalem's destruction is about to take place and you need to flee the city. Those signs would have been embedded in the heart and mind of those who had interest in what the Lord said. And so as those years of the, the seventh decade of that particular century came around... All things were fairly well in A.D. 66. However, by the end of A.D. 67, things had begun to take a turn for the worse. In fact, the Romans began to have a great deal greater animosity toward the Jews. They began to have a great deal more difficulty with Jewish uprisings. 
And by the time A.D. 68 came, it was already beginning to look very bleak. Thankfully, those who had an interest in what the Lord had said knew that when the signs came, for their own preservation and for their own safety, one needed to leave Jerusalem. Thankfully, many of them did. Thankfully, every Christian that we know of did. You notice again, Christians were the ones who would have had a respect for what Jesus said. They would have been the believers and they would have been the ones who heard with intensity what Jesus had proclaimed and taught those 40 years earlier. And as that word was maintained and as it was shared by mouth amongst those that were Christians, I wonder, what did the Christians do as the time of Jerusalem's destruction came to pass? Thankfully, we do have some records toward that reality. Josephus was a Jewish writer. In fact, he's arguably the most noted Jewish historian. Many times what he says corroborates the Bible. I am not by any means saying he was an inspired man, for he wasn't. But it is interesting that when one finds that what he wrote is in agreement with this, doesn't it tell us that God knew the truth all along and the Lord prophesied the truth all along? And when he spoke about the destruction of Jerusalem, these were a few of the things he said. The Christians in Jerusalem, as they saw the signs come to pass, they fled the city in vast, vast numbers. And they dwelled in a district not far from Jerusalem. It was known as Pella, P-E-L-L-A. And they dwelled there by the hundreds of thousands. They took a great interest in what Jesus had taught. And as they proceeded to leave Jerusalem and dwell here, they were spared. When the Roman armies came, surrounding Jerusalem, besieging Jerusalem, all those Christians had gone far enough away. They were spared, and they were spared because they believed what the Lord said, and they followed His command. But all of those Jews who stayed inside the city, the Jews who, of course, didn't accept the Christ and didn't believe in Him and thought that He was just an imposter, guess what happened to them? As the Roman armies came, they were then unable to flee because they had ignored the signs. They were unable to escape the torrent of the city because they had ignored what the Lord said. And they were slaughtered by the hundreds of thousands. And Josephus even says, millions of Jews were killed. In the history of the world, one of the greatest bloodbaths the world has ever known. Why? Because they ignored the signs. The Lord had told them what to look for. They neglected it. They rejected it. Sad to say today, as we've noted earlier in the lesson, many are still misapplying the first part of this chapter. As if it applies to the end of the world, it doesn't. It applied to that day and time, to that destruction of Jerusalem. You'll notice as you arrive at this next slide, we've highlighted some of the features about that first answer. Let's now look at the second answer. We noted earlier that up through verse number 34 was an answer to the first question. Now let's think about the second question. They had again asked, What shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world? They had heard the Lord preach and teach about the fact that He was going to come again. And they had heard Him state with such clarity that that would be a great occasion now they took this time to ask him, tell us, what about your next coming? When's it going to be? 
and also about the end of the end of the world. Now that question still rests upon the mind, I suppose, of every thinking person. Interested to know what about last things? There's in fact an entire discipline often studied at colleges and universities. It's called eschatology. That's just a fancy word that means the study of final things. There are many supposed experts in eschatology, but the only word needed is what's in this book. This book tells us about the end of time. It reveals all that we need to know about the order of events. But as we learn, let us notice some of the thoughts in the Lord's second answer. As you can see on that slide, one of the most noteworthy conclusions is this, beginning in verse 36. But, and you'll note the word but, that's a word of contrast highlighting what the Lord had asserted before in answer to the first question, now in contrast to this answer to the second one. But, of that day and that hour, Lord, what day and what hour? Tell us what should be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world. The day and hour of His second coming and, of course, by association to the end of the world. Jesus said, Of that day and hour knoweth no man, no, not the angels of heaven, but my Father only. But as the days of Noah were, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days of Noah, for... As in the days that were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered into the ark, and knew not until the flood came and took them all away, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. Then shall two be in the field, the one shall be taken and the other left. Two women shall be grinding at the mill, the one taken and the other left. That thought tells us this, doesn't it? First, it takes our mind back to the scene of Genesis chapter 6 through 8 when that flood of Noah's day arrived. Noah had preached 120 years as a preacher of righteousness, 2 Peter 2 5. And in that proclamation, he had set forth the reality and the power of the need for repentance and the coming unto God. For we do learn in 1 Peter 3 verses 18 to 20 that he, in fact, preached the very nature of what the Lord had delivered to him to preach. However, only eight souls heard that preaching and responded to it as they should. Noah and his family were the only ones that were aboard the ark. What about all those others outside? I'm sure the vast majority thought that Noah was crazy. I'm sure the vast majority thought this man must be beside himself. Building an ark when it's never even rained? Building an ark when there's not any rain in sight? I wonder what they thought when it began to rain. I wonder what they thought when the floodwaters began to get so deep and so high that it began to get concerning. My strong suspicion is they were pounding on the outside of that ark at least as long as they could reach it. Pounding on it, begging him to pull them inside. But it was too late then. They had ignored all the signs. They had ignored all the preaching. They had ignored all the things that had been revealed. Jesus said the end of time is going to be like that. So many who've been given opportunity to hear, to believe, and to be baptized and to respond, and they've ignored all the teaching. They've ignored all the opportunity given. Jesus said the end of time is going to be like that. 
you'll notice then that the latter part of this chapter, chapter 24, beginning in verse 36, that's the section that so carefully applies to the end of time. That leads me to appreciate with you that all these modern-day relationships to the Middle East and how supposedly the signs of the first part of this chapter are being fulfilled, that's nothing short of nonsense. There are no signs going to happen for the end of time. All of those who think they have the nerve that they can somehow read in Daniel and in Ezekiel and find out when the end of time is going to be, that simply is not going to happen. Jesus knew the Bible better than any human being ever will. And if Jesus could not tell us when it was, and He said, no man, not even the angels in heaven, know when that's going to be. My Father only. And if men think they have the nerve to have figured it out, that's nothing short of blasphemy. We appreciate that the end of time is something that we know for sure will happen, but we have no idea when it'll be. It may be tonight. It may be tomorrow. It could be a hundred million years from now. This much, however, we understand well that the latter part of this chapter still reminds us that the key element and idea will be preparation. Didn't Jesus say as He continued this chapter and on into chapter 25? Oddly enough, most of chapter 25, in fact, still surrounds the Lord's answer to that second question. And that's the very chapter in which He taught the parable of the talents. And that's the very chapter He gave us the depiction of the judgment. You'll notice again the interesting scene closing Matthew 25. The first part of Matthew 25 is also well known to us. That's the parable of the five wise and five foolish virgins, reminding us that when the bridegroom comes and the door is shut, there will be no longer any entrance. Those that are wise are the ones that not only brought oil, but brought enough to last even if the bridegroom delays his coming. The key is preparation, isn't it? Always, be, always living so that we're ready, so that we'll be ready. All of that perhaps reminds us, doesn't it, that this is a fascinating chapter and a fascinating set of discussions. This particular slide leads us then to notice that the Lord, as He answered these questions, gave us the key in verse 34 of proper division of that chapter. I thought there was one more slide following it. My apology for that. On that slide, as we look at that point of conclusion, relative to the questions the Lord answered, I think we can all be thankful that Peter, Andrew, James, and John came and asked Jesus these questions. And can we not be so appreciative that Jesus answered them and told us when He was answering which question? The destruction of Jerusalem... It did happen just as the Lord said it would. But He gave signs so that they could appreciate it and flee it in time. Thanks be unto God, many of them heeded the warnings and signs. But when it comes to the end of time, there will be no signs. There are none. We shouldn't then be agitated and bothered when every little skirmish in the Middle East happens and some person then gets all excited and says, All the signs for the end of time are here. For they are not. There are no signs. In 1988, a gentleman named Hal Lindsey published a book entitled The Late Great Planet Earth. That book has become a mainstay of those who believe that most of Matthew 24 
is a proclamation of the end of time. That book, for those that are Bible believers such as you and me, the book is blasphemous. He takes so much of Matthew 24 and says all of these are signs of the end of time when the man is not telling the truth. He isn't by any means the only one who has done that. Typical preachers that you and I are aware of, such as John Hagee, Harold Camping, and a whole host of others who have many, many followers who contribute vast sums of money to their preaching efforts. And yet those speakers, by and large, will camp in Matthew 24 and use it to teach about the end of time and all the signs supposedly to come. They're all mistaken. You and I can rest assured Jesus told the truth when He said there will be no signs of the end of time. May you and I live day by day wisely, always under the blood-bought character of the covenant of the New Testament, knowing that's the only way that we can be saved. And there will be no signs of that great and final event. I hope tonight that our study of Matthew 24 has been an illuminating one as we've remembered that the Lord rightly divided that chapter for us. May we in wisdom love the division and appreciate the soundness of the teaching found therein. But tonight at this point, it's a good time for self-examination. What about you and what about me? Are we living faithfully till death? We realize that is the Lord's command. And interestingly, you might remember Jesus said that he that endureth to the end shall be saved. The Lord made that statement about those there as the destruction of Jerusalem came. But John says something almost identical in Revelation 2. We must endure to the end as well if we are to be saved. Are you perseverant unto the end? Have you added that Christian grace to your life? If you need to come forward tonight confessing error in a public way and asking for prayers of brethren, we'd be delighted to pray with you and for you. If you have never become a member of the body of Christ, never allowed yourself to be immersed in water for the forgiveness of sins, that is to say, never been baptized, why not tonight? There will never be a better night than this one, this first Sunday in March, the year 2013. If we could be of help to you tonight in either of these ways, initial obedience or rededication to the truth, we'd be delighted to assist you and to help you. And if we could do that, why not let us do it while together we stand and while we sing?